Hello again, faithful followers of Columbus Business First. I'm Domina Kappa, Editor-in-Chief of the paper. And this Kicker podcast features the thoughts, opinions, and insights of Sherrod Brown, one of Ohio's two U.S. Senators. We met with him during one of his visits to Columbus. For those unfamiliar with the lawmaker, Senator Brown is a Democrat from Cleveland, and he has been a member of the Congressional Chamber since 2007. He's a seasoned legislative player. He was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for 14 years, once was Secretary of State in Ohio, and before that served seven years in the Ohio House of Representatives. Managing Editor Doug Buchanan, reporter Tom Knox, and I chatted with Brown primarily about business topics of interest to Ohioans, but as you expect, the conversation turned toward the tenor on Capitol Hill and his political future. Here's our talk. So you were in the news a lot yesterday. Uh, saw a lot of speculation uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton is at least has you on the short list. Um, are you interested? I am not. I um, I yeah, I've, I love what I'm doing now. I'm not seeking this in any way. I know a number of my colleagues would love to be chosen. I want to continue to do what I do. I mean, I, I, I you know, I've, all the stuff I've worked on just recently in Columbus on CMAX and Hardest yep. Hit Fund and and uh, some of the tax tax incentives and CHIP working with Nationwide Children's and all those, I, I want to continue doing that. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, not actively seeking and, you know, kind yeah. of a Sherman-esque, if nominated, I will not run or well, do I Well, I don't think she'll... I, don't think she'll ask me. I think there are seven or eight people on the quote-unquote short list, yeah. um, and I assume one of them will be asked. And she knows I'm not wild about doing that. That I love to stay where I am. Okay. Hey, listen, right. in, in, in your briefing, you talked a little bit about abusive lending practices, particularly out of um, uh, payday lenders, mm-hmm. and um, your support for CFPB to, to to sort of step up the the rules on that. Um, I, what do you want out of oversight for payday? Do you want them gone? Um, I want, uh, I think in some cases they, I wouldn't quite say I want them gone. I want, I want to make, I want to provide other options. I want uh, people who now go to payday lenders to have other options um, so that payday lender really is last resort and you don't end up in this downward spiral. The problem with payday lender is not the first loan. It's that people that get a loan so often will have to get a second loan or a third loan, loan, and they end up paying literally hundreds of percent interest. Let me give you an example of, of how to make it, not to put them out of business, that's not my role or government's role, but in some sense to make other options more attractive. Uh, I, I, I was, a group of us were successful last year in making permanent the earned income tax credit, which is a significant refundable tax credit for people making but full-time working, full, mostly full-time working families up to about 40000 45000 a year. They will get two or three or $4,000 tax, refundable tax credit when they file their taxes. Now, here's, here's a change that we're trying to make and not yet been successful. If you have already earned, say, 2000 of your earned income tax credit, $4,000, it's October, you've already earned most of your earned income tax credit, your car breaks down, now you go to a payday lender. Um, you end up paying interest rates that that you have that downward spiral. Instead, um, I would like I would like the government to say you can get one advance. It's not a loan. One advance if you've already earned it of up to five hundred dollars on your on your earned income tax credit refund for the next year. So if it's October, you've already worked most of the year. Right. Or if it's July, you've worked half of the year. 
and you could then get an advance, doesn't cost taxpayers anything, it just advances the money. I mean, you could say it's pennies maybe. Gives, tax, gives that, um, that potential, that person that might have to go to a payday lender, gives them a break so they can get their car fixed. Um, they'll get $500 less. They can't take their whole in, earned income tax credit. They can't do it multiple times because then it, it takes away a lot of what the earned income tax credit is. But it gives people that one time where it keeps them out of going to that payday lending shop. Are, are, are there any other issues with payday lenders that you would like to see? Well, I think they need to disclose better when people get the loan. I mean, there, there are, you know, the, the legislature um, thought it had pretty much regulated them out of business, mm -hmm. and then the voters voted to do that, and then the interest uh, power of payday lenders have pretty good lobbyists at the state house, and they have uh, the majority in the state legislature is pretty open to some of their arguments. and. So there are ways, many states don't have payday lending. I mean, there are, um, I don't remember the number, but two dozen states or so don't even allow any payday lending by setting a cap on interest rates. Um, and people aren't starved for capital in those states. They found ways of getting money to, um, to those people that need it without having to, this downward spiral of payday lending. So is, um, is that from banks? Um, uh, it's sometimes credit unions, it's sometimes, um, companies do it at lower interest rates. I mean, these, these payday lending companies, they don't have to charge the interest rates they right. do. It's a great business model and brings lots of money for them, but they could have a sort of a downsized, if you will, business model. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you, you talk to Rich Cordray, the head of the Consumer Bureau from mm -hmm. this city, as you know, uh, and he will, um, he's pretty convincing that they can do this um, at lower interest rates they have in other states, sometimes credit unions stick up. I mean, ultimately, I want to find ways to get more people into the banking system overall, right. the unbanked. I mean, that's that's in everybody's interest. It's ultimately in Huntington's interest, too. It's not just the customer's interest. It really is the, the you know, the particularly the, the, I think particularly the smaller credit union, the credit unions and the smaller banks. And I mean, put Huntington in the smaller bank category or not, but maybe the mid-sized regionals, um, I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, Huntington has certainly gotten a lot of uh, attention, a lot of customers with a you know fair play initiative. With, you know, they're really focusing on consumer banking, and, and it just it stands out because it's it's kind of unusual. Well, Huntington did some things, sort of in I don't think in anticipation, but prior to the Consumer Bureau's um, ordering of them on the on uh, the Consumer Bureau uh, rule about check cashing, that, mm -hmm. for instance. I mean, Huntington did a number of things that cost them significant numbers of dollars in fees just in the order of the cashing of checks, yep. processing of checks, that some Morgan. banks do it in a way that elicits you know, lots and lots of overdraft charges, and Huntington does in a way that might end up with one overdraft charge because you did overdraft, but if you cash them and if you process them in the right order, then um, you don't pay for every, you don't get nickel and dime, except every nickel and dime is $30 or whatever. Right. So, yeah. so Hunt Huntington, is, Huntington has really been, I don't know if they're far and away the best at that, but they clearly have stood out. There may be other banks in other regions of the country I don't know about, but they've certainly done that in a way that, that really does serve their customers. Uh, on, on, on the issue of banking and too big to fail, mm -hmm. which you've been, mm -hmm. you've had your eyes wide open on that. Um, What's the right prescription for this? Where do you think that it stands right now in terms of reaching that area of banks that are uh, getting rid of t the too big to fail? Um, yeah, good question. A um, couple things. Um, Bloomberg did a study now about three years old that um, that suggests or believes that that uh, 
money, that, 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 that borrowing for the largest banks, the quote unquote too big to fail banks, the the you know the six the six or eight depending on how you define it one which is very yeah, big yeah, yeah which yeah Morgan which, Chase yeah yeah obviously J P Morgan Chase the banks that are that are sort of five hundred million and up five hundred billion and up um, do get about a seventy or eighty basis point advantage meaning they can borrow money at four fifths of an interest four fifths of a percent cheaper than than Huntington or than um, First Bank of Coldwater Ohio I mean that they are Sycamore Ohio the smaller banks so. Um, that's a problem. That suggests too big to fail still there. That number probably has come down because of uh, higher capital standards and other things. I think, though, more recently, what the Fed and the um, FDIC did on the on the um, six banks, five five banks, I guess five banks, um, five banks they agreed, and two other banks they they FDIC took one position and the Fed the other on the other two banks. Uh, with the living will, I think is very significant. And living will simply—it's—it's it's the. Could you explain that? Yeah, the living will is is where banks have to show through a very, very, very complicated process that if something happens, something bad in the economy happens, they can go through what's called an orderly um, resolution authority. They can um, they can break their bank up in a way they can they can sell off their assets in a way that. Um, that won't cause a degree of tremors through the banking system, system that right. would would really would, would challenge the would challenge the stability of the banking system. The real safe, real solid safety and soundness questions um, or levels. So um, they found all but of the big banks, all but Citibank um, failed in part. They have in, in their 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 living will putting together their orderly res, resolution authority. Um, they have, I believe, until July, I believe it's July, to, um, to show that either the Fed and the OCC, I'm sorry, the Fed and the FDIC were wrong, or to improve what they need to do. And then they're given another X number of months if they haven't satisfied their criteria um, to begin to sell off some of their assets and get smaller. So it's not, it's not a dictum from Congress or the FDIC or the Federal Reserve. You must break up these banks. To, 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 it's not a dictum to break them up. Right. It's saying if you can't if you can't guarantee as much as you can guarantee anything in, in something so complex. If you can't guarantee that you are in fact um, not too big to fail, then you're gonna you're gonna make some decision. We're not gonna say get rid of that asset, that asset, sell off this one, but the Fed's gonna say you've got to get smaller, and so that you can show this. It, do you, do you foresee, and this is not that there's anything out there, do, do you foresee at some point that the banks will be broken up, that some of these big ones will? Um, I think banks will. I What's think the sense in Washington? Yeah, well, I, 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 obviously, it depends on whom you talk to. I think that the banks, um, I don't think the banks will keep growing the way they are. I think that some banks will get smaller. City, and I, I, I'm speaking a little outside my area of expertise here, Citibank was not um, found in violation is the wrong word, was not found to be problematic. Um, partly, I believe, this is where I'm not positive, but partly because Citibank has had about a two or three year plan to get a little bit smaller. They're, they're pulling out of markets, they're downstairs, they're shrinking some of their, um, their uh, retail outlets. I think they're looking at six or seven markets to be really big in the retail banking sector. Um, and Ohio, I believe, is Ohio is not any one of those. I mean, seven sort of urban metropolitan areas in Ohio doesn't have one of those. And we're so we have very three very successful regional banks, as you know, right. uh, uh, Fifth Third, Huntington, and Key. 
And uh, we also have uh, another sort of super regional PNC is really big here, used to be in that right. city. And then we have, as you said a minute ago, we have um, obviously big presence of a lot of the big ones, particularly J.P. Morgan Chase. So, um, I, but, but I, I mean, what, what, what happened that's, I think, uh, over, oversee, overrides all of this is 30 years ago, um, that's roughly, uh, the the six largest banks made up only about 16, 17, 18 percent of GDP. Today, the six largest banks make up about 60 percent. And that, that growth came, sort of steady growth as these big banks swallowed up smaller ones and regional ones, but it also happened, accelerated in 2006, 7, 8. It hadn't happened because of Dodd-Frank. It was really prior to. But I, I just think these banks more and more are seeing that when, the, when you look at the fines that the big banks have paid, the settlements they've made, um, they're, they're, it's not just too big to fail, it's too hard, too complicated to manage and too hard to regulate. I mean, they're, they're, you know, these holding companies own hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of various kind of entities. And, and, it's, 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 and that, that's, that's why I think they don't continue to grow and over time I would assume they'd shrink. And capital, the, the, the Fed has done well um, sorry to make this answer so long. The no, Fed is fine. doing well on. It's a complicated thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the Fed is doing well on on higher capital standards that I think, sort of obviate the 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 immediate necessity of breaking up the banks. I had an amendment during Dodd Frank, Brown Kaufman. The amendment was called to break up every bank over basically over six hundred thousand was the way it was written. Mm -hmm. Didn't say six hundred thousand, but based on percent of assets and GDP and all that, um, it failed. It got thirty three, thirty four votes. Um, got a handful of Republican votes, got about half, a little more than half the Democrats. Um, that's not, I think the best answer now is is making sure that we do living wills right. And I think that the, I have a lot of confidence in Janet Yellen, and I have confidence in, 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 um, in the, the head of the FDIC also that they're doing this right. Just one quick follow-up on sure. that. Uh, you did mention Dodd-Frank. I mean, is there an, an appetite for easing Dodd-Frank for the smaller banks uh, easing regulations yeah. to, you know, to make it because I know you mentioned yeah. that the consolidation trend was happening yeah. before, but it seems to have accelerated since. Yeah, it hadn't really accelerated, but the small banks say it has, I and mean, it really hasn't. The, the small banks are; um, they will also say there haven't been new bank charters um, since 2000, since Dodd Frank. Uh, probably the reason for that is not the heavy hand of Dodd Frank, although that's an issue, and I acknowledge that. It's the low interest rates. It's just not a good when interest sure. rates are this this low, you can't get a very good spread uh, in with your money, and, and it means that people that would look at you <laughs> with some question of with, with some question in their minds if you wanted to start a bank now. I, mean, I think it's a big part of that's a little simple, but I, mm -hmm. um, uh, the answer is yes. Um, one of the things we've tried to do with Dodd Frank, and I've spoken at length with Dan Torillo, who's the Fed governor in charge of supervision. Um, to Yellen personally about to Green to to Martin Martin Greenberg at at um, at, at FDIC and to uh, Tom Curry at OCC is how do you tailor these regulations in a way that that doesn't doesn't squeeze the small guys? Mm -hmm. There are certain issues that are that the small guys are going to have to pay attention to too, and that is certainly um, the consumer the consumer issues you mentioned Huntington's what they did with check ordering sure um, that that should be prohibited for any bank. And so regardless of your size, and I know a lot of banks lived on those fees, that was an important part of their, of their profit, um, their profit margins. Um, but I, I think that the, the problem, the political problem is that 
just like on the Affordable Care Act. There are lots of changes that we could make uh, if Congress would be serious about it, but right. instead the, the majority party in both houses wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act and repeal Dodd-Frank. We're not going to go for that. So if the issue on the table is always repeal, nothing will happen. If the issue on both, on both Dodd-Frank and Affordable Care Act is let's figure out how we make these two mega laws better, because any time Congress has done anything as big as those two, you've always had problems that come about because they're so complicated and so right. big. And, and Congress is just, because of the political, I, I mean, I, I, I can blame Republicans more on this because they want to say just repeal, repeal, repeal. But both parties have to step up. And I'm hopeful with the election of a new president, whoever this, the person is, I was going to say whoever she is, but that would be, <laughs> I mean, any, but you Carly Frady, it. maybe still. <laughs> um, but but um, I, I hope then that both parties will say, okay, let's figure out what change we'll make. We, we had one good, the only, the only, or the first change of any significance in Dodd-Frank was my bill on, um, that, that I worked with Nationwide on, because Nationwide, as an $180 billion insurance company running a $5 billion bank, was, was um, tasked with, uh, or charged with, or forced to have the same capital requirements for the whole $180 billion as if the whole thing were a bank. And we just made an adjustment in the law, but it, it, that took a year to do. Um, because when we did it, the House wanted to blow up everything in Dodd-Frank, and we right. said no, and they said, well, sorry then, and finally we got it done. You've been watching um, pretty closely an episode down with it involved a for-profit college in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. um, what, would be your, what would be your look at how to either regulate or crack down on for-profit colleges? Well, you, you, you start with their business model, and their business model for for-profit colleges is fundamentally that they put a lot of effort into put they spend they, they they hire people and spend huge dollars on recruiting they spend huge dollars on helping those those new students get financial aid they spend very little on um, any kind of job placement job counseling and that's their model that's what bring that's why they're so profitable um, by and large um, community colleges who they sort of with whom they sort of compete, community colleges are, are um, what they do is they backload much, much less money on recruiting. They help in financial aid, of course, but much more money on, on job placement. And one of, the, one of the most fun things to do in this job is to speak to a community college graduation where they're often first in the family go to college. The, the dental hygienists, um, one time I spoke at one of the dental hygienists all had like a tooth mold on their, on their, on their um, Order board. I mean, they, it's it's an exciting community event. They they mostly have jobs, and they I mean, overwhelming numbers have jobs, and they have jobs locally. I mean, that's the model to to follow. But when you inject for profit motives or for profit business models into education, it just doesn't work well. Look at the scandal in Ohio with with for profit and online online for profit and classroom for profit charter schools. There are some really good charter schools. Look what Columbus does with with um, with with KIPP, look what Cleveland does. I mean, Columbus Beyond, Cleveland Beyond on Breakthrough. Um, there are these are these are really good not-for-profit charter schools. But when you inject for-profit into college, higher ed or K through 12, the the allegiance to the student has been has has if not disintegrated, certainly been um, diluted. So do you you still see a role for for-profit well, colleges? I think there could be a role if the rules are written so they. They have to have some of the ratios. They have to have. They have to show good job placement numbers. They have to have um, 
a better ratio of 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 front end back end. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's, and and I I, I assume the for profits. I mean, I you know they 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 spend so much money marketing that um, people hear about University of Phoenix or they hear about Corinthian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbus State doesn't have the marketing budget, and you know they they temp- often charge. They typically charge more than Columbus State. They're wreck, but. You're a student, and you're you know they 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 go after the the most vulnerable in many ways in our society. They're targeting, they're targeting some of the poorest kids that are looking for opportunity, and and they talk their way through a really good marketing um, program. And and um, I I don't I don't again I don't want to put them out of business, but I want to make their rules such that they get to be a lot better businesses. And maybe they maybe they decide they don't want to do it because their profit margins aren't as big as they are now. I mean, the CEOs look compare CEO pay of Columbus State, or even Ohio State with the, C, the CEO pay of some of these for profits. I mean, and if the CEOs making that much, you figure the top vice presidents are making a whole lot too. And is that is that the way we want to educate our, our young people? And I I, I think not generally. I, I want to go back to the the vice president potential. Um, you know, you say you're doing a lot in Ohio. Uh, you want to keep doing that, but couldn't you argue you could do even more for Ohio if you had the era of President Hillary Clinton? You wouldn't convince me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just love what I do now. I mean, I, I get to I get to work on everything from, you know, the Children's Hospital. I mean, just in this community, Children's Hospital stuff to the Hardest Hit Fund to CMAX, with what we did with the transportation bill to, um, you know, to, to chip on to, to the earned income tax credit to a lot of the. Um, tax reform because I'm on two of the best committees in the Senate. Um, so I, I just don't, I don't have the ambition. I don't look in the mirror and see a president of the United States. I mean, I, I don't I don't have that ambition. I can't believe I get to do this job and I feel privileged to get to do it. And um, my life is, is where I want it to be professionally that way. There's, you know, in, in, in a business conversation, there's an awful lot of talk about minimum wage and it, and it changes by state, it changes by city. Um, there's been the um, the train of thought that 15 bucks an hour may be it. Um, where do you stand on that? Well, I, I co-sponsor the bill for $15 an hour. Um, it doesn't go into effect immediately. It's it's tiered. Um, the minimum wage today has 30% less buying power than it did 30 years ago. Uh, we also, at the same time, there's this overtime rule where if you're making if you're making $30,000 a year today, and this is not minimum wage, but let me do this sort of ancillary comment. If you're making $30,000 a year and you're considered, you're a night manager at some store or whatever, you're considered management because they designated you that. Yeah. Um, you're making $30,000 a year, assuming a 40-hour week. If they work you 50 hours, you um, you don't even get paid straight time for hours 41 through 50 because you're you're considered management. Um, and you know that the if a, if a lawyer or a doctor or a politician or somebody's working 50 or 60 hours, that's the way it is. But we're we're above that income level, and so the Department of Labor rule will raise that level to 50,000, which won't even catch up with what it was 30 or 40 years ago. It just hadn't kept up. In terms of minimum wage, what 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 I always find intriguing when I hear the opponents of minimum wage and say is that um, we'll have to raise prices and lay off people if we increase the minimum wage. But I never hear them say that when an executive gets a million dollar bonus or when another executive is making three million a year. They, they never say that cost is going to cause layoffs or higher prices. And I'd just like to have that debate someday too. Got it. Um, something that's, that's non-business. What, what, what's the federal answer to Ohio's heroin problem? 
Um, very good question. And I've worked with Senator Portman on this, and uh, we did a hearing in Cleveland this week. Um, it's a terrible, terrible problem. More, more people died of car accidents, more people die of heroin overdose last year than, than automobile accidents in this state. Um, it's everywhere. It's not just, it's, you know, it sort of started in um, mostly, I mean, first time I started hearing about it with any frequency was it around the time I came to the Senate a decade ago, and it was in mostly in southern Ohio then, and it became, there were the pill mills and the, the pharmacy shopping and the doctor shopping, and there were a few really bad actors that, that fed this. Um, and you can point a lot of fingers. It gets us nowhere in this. I think the federal role is, as the state role is, is to start providing more money to scale. It's not only a money problem, but to scale up these clinics. I mean, you, we have some very good treatment centers um, and the federal role needs to be twofold. One is to raise the number of patients um, above the 10-year-old the cap that, um, so that through these treatment centers, and the treatment centers that, are, that are, we know are good, have a track record, that they can, process, they can, they can um, work with, uh, they can serve more than, than, than the 100 number that they are allowed to serve now under the federal rules. It was 30 the first year, then 100, then it's capped. And in the good, in the, in the, you know, you don't, the, the rules were put in place for the back before the problem was so big and because some people were gaming the system. But if it's through these recognized clinics that, that know how to do this, sometimes with Medicaid-assisted treatment, other times with other ways, then the caps should be lifted. That's the first thing. The other thing is to scale up with dollars. Um, nobody, none of these treatment centers, I've done round tables all over the state, did one in Chillicothe recently, Niles recently, in Northeast Ohio, and um, none of these treatment facilities thought they'd have anything close to these numbers of, of this demand, so they just can't scale up. They don't have the money to do it, and the feds, you know, we passed a pretty good bill in the Senate, but we fund, like we so often do, there was no funding for it because Grover Norquist got a lot of people to take a pledge saying they'd never vote revenue for anything. So um, we've just got to, we've, we've got to do both. Um, there are other things in the bill that, that, as I said, Senator Portman and I and others have worked on that, that, that give, that, that sort of help this federal, state, local partnership. Um, I think the state, but, but neither the feds or the states have stepped up enough to do this. And it's just, 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 just too many stories, as you know. <clears throat> And, and, and you talked a little bit earlier. I'm, I'm just curious, um, uh, you know, the era of compromise in Washington. You guys have been taking a yeah. beating over the past number of years. Is, is, is 50 it gone? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is it gone? Well, it, it, is, it I mean, you know, yes and no. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, pres the presidential race always makes it harder because you've got Absolutely. people saying things that um, they probably mean, but whether they mean it or not, it's, it's, makes it harder. Um, I guess I would answer this way, that last fall, Senate got a lot of stuff done, and we did. And in 2000, well, we, um, we, extended the, we extended a lot of the tax breaks that needed extending on um, research and development and, and R&D tax credits on, on, um, on uh, a number of other business taxes, on energy taxes and others that will help on the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit made permanent. Um, we were able to um, pass a transportation, six-year transportation bill. Um, that's where that was where, where CMAX came so, out of. Mm -hmm. But beyond CMAX was what we were able to do um, for DOTs, all of ODOT and other DOTs around the country, in county engineers in Franklin and Delaware and elsewhere, will be able to plan long term much better than in the past. Uh, the way we funded it was. Um, what was the key element to that? I'm 
well, the key element to doing it was just, I think, the pressure from contractors and county engineers, business, local contractors, companies, business, um, uh, business people generally that said, how can we possibly attract jobs with our infrastructure the way it is? And we had the best infrastructure in the world from the 40s to the 80s, and it's atrophied ever since. We went from number one to number 15 or whatever, however you grade it, but, but we, we get like a C plus or something from the Civil Engineer Society. It might even be lower than that now. Um, so I think it was all that pressure, but it was also, we still funded it in a, in a sort of Rube Goldberg kind of using the Fed as the piggy, Federal Reserve as a piggy bank, which we can't keep doing stupid things like that instead of finding the right, finding a way to produce revenues to fund it. I mean, the gas tax was $1.69, I think, and I mean, the ga I think gas prices in Ohio around that time were I think I remember they were $1.65 to $1.78 or $1.79, something like that, during that period of when we actually voted on the bill. And we just, um, you know, we're not, we're not doing our jobs in that case. But so we got the transportation bill, we did some good tax stuff, we got the hardest hit funds, $2 billion um, to, you know, clean up blight and help people stay in their homes and do lead abatement. Um, that all happened in the last couple of months of the session. So it's, it's there's, there's still too much dysfunction. We still aren't really addressing the major issues that, of public investment, but um, I, I think the dysfunction, I mean, you look at the Supreme Court now, and that's not dysfunction, that's one party's um, a historical view of the world saying this has happened, you know, this is what Congress does. Well, no, there's never been a Supreme Court vacancy as long as a year since the Civil War because we were in a Civil War. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, the Latin, President Reagan had a nominee confirmed unanimously by a Democratic Senate his last year of office. So um, those, that kind of dysfunction is not always bipartisan. It's a bit false equivalency to blame both parties when we can't get a nominee for the Supreme Court. We, we've confirmed fewer judges, I believe, in the last year and a half, any time since 1960, something like that. I mean, it's been on any federal judge, district, uh, district circuit, or Supreme Court. Going back on transportation, time time for an increase in in the in the gas tax. Well, we should do something. I, I I'm open raise to money. Yeah, I'm open in a lot of different ways. We've always in this country used had a user fee. I mean, what I what I've advocated in the past is, if you're going to increase the gas tax, um, then you also find a way for people making under about sixty thousand, or it could be fifty, it could be eighty. I figure that out. Um, get some break on their payroll tax because people. People that have to drive 30, 40 minutes to work or use their, use their pickup truck at work um, should not bear the brunt of this. But, um, you know, we, we've used a user fee in the past. It's worked pretty well. The gas tax hasn't gone up. The federal gas tax hasn't gone up for over 20 years. Um, but, but, but soften the impact on people that are, you know, that, that, that have to rely on transportation and paying that. Um, and her moderate income. There you go. Our thanks to Senator Sherrod Brown for his commentary, and our thanks to you, of course, for spending time with us. If you want to hear any of our earlier podcasts, you can find them on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just type the kicker or Columbus Business first into the search function to find them. And if you want to know more about what's going on every day in Central Ohio's business scene, we invite you to look us up online at columbusbusinessfirst.com. 
At our website, you'll find our reports as news breaks, and you can sign up for our morning and afternoon daily news roundups. And you'll read in our weekly print edition about the people and the stories behind the headlines from our staff of award-winning journalists. Until next time, we appreciate your listening.